Hello everyone, welcome back to Incidicast. I sure hope you enjoyed the Halloween season. I hope you all had a, a fun Halloween day and night. And of course got up to some spooky things and hopefully watched some pretty good films in the process. And probably if you've uh, been to the cinema lately, uh, watched some maybe not so decent films lately. But alas, uh, yeah. Speaking of Halloween, obviously we just covered the Halloween franchise or at least the original and the new Blumhouse films, on this podcast. So if this is the episode that you stumbled upon, do check out those episodes and any other episode that might tickle your fancy. It is uh, greatly appreciated to do so. Also, please do check out the links below to check out any socials. Uh, obviously, you can follow any posts that I make on there. Also, uh, there's a link tree, which you'll find those things. You can subscribe to the link tree, get notified whenever I upload new episodes, uh, and also, as well, if you feel so inclined, there is a link to donate to PayPal. No pressure, but you know, it's just a part of continued support. You can donate as little as much as you like. Greatly appreciated either way. The content will continue regardless. So, this week, we're going to be uh, going over a film that I was going to cover a few months ago, but I never actually uh, ended up doing it. And the main reason is because... I just can't really um I just can't really find the time to get like everyone to watching it because funny enough it's a, it's a film that I've not actually watched before but it is a film that I understand is a bit of a cult classic has quite the following to it so there is no time like the present to finally check this film out and see what it's all about this week we're going to be talking about Ginger Snaps which was released in the year 2000 and it's uh, a Canadian uh, horror film uh, sort of directed by John Fawcett and written by Karen Walton. Uh, these two sort of do the, I guess, the crafting of the story side by side. And I think that's kind of why this type of thing, I think, contributes to film and the horror genre of werewolves, I guess, and kind of separates it from everything that came before. Obviously, I think initially I was going to talk about this film during Pride Month. I covered a few films on this podcast during Pride Month that were quite significant for uh, sort of gay representation in cinema. It was quite groundbreaking, you know. Um, this film was one of them. And the main reason I think that this strikes that chord and, and can be so separate and so significant is the fact that it's written by a woman. I mean, that's just realistically... Uh, a very strong factor because a lot of this is not only highlighting specifically uh, female struggles, especially with puberty and, and getting older, but also there's some interesting subtext there which, you know, lends itself to the questioning of sexuality and identity uh, and obviously people's comfortable feelings in their own body, but we're going to get into that. So yeah, this film kind of starts out a little bit weird for me. Uh, it kind of gave me flashbacks to, like, um, Brain Dead almost. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. Super wacky. But it, it just felt very much in that nature in terms of the the quality of the picture, but also just the kind of campiness of the intro. Uh, although it's portrayed quite seriously, it is a woman screaming and crying in the streets because her dogs died, uh, which... I'm sure many of us would feel like that. I think it is probably a little bit dramatic to actually see that in real life. But but from this, we get uh, an introduction into 
obviously the Fitzgerald sisters. And this is kind of where things really sort of bring you in because they have such interesting sort of like characters between them. Uh, so we have uh, Emily Perkins, who plays uh, Bridget, uh, also known as B in this film. You may have remembered her from the Stephen King TV series. She played the younger Beverly Marsh. And of course, uh, Catherine Isabel, who played Ginger. Uh, a few side honourable mentions as well. We have uh, Chris Lemshi and also Jesse Moss. These two appeared together in Final Destination 3. So it's kind of interesting that they came back together uh, for that film. And then I guess the only kind of other really significant person is obviously uh, Mimi Rogers, who plays Pamela, which is the mother. And she does a very good job in this film to be that really awkward parent. <laughs> so that all works. But uh, for, the, for the simplicity, I think I'll just stick to what the film does, which is I'll just use the, the name B and Ginger. I think that just you know, makes things a bit easier. I think the pair of them sum up quite beautifully how awkward uh, the coming-of-age story is, and I think that they sum up that kind of goth, awkward, cringy, like, teenage perspective about life and death and everything being very punk rock, and, you know, they, they sort of have, like, a suicide pact with each other. Which is a super interesting concept, you know. Uh, I've known people that were along similar lines when I was younger, but obviously never, thankfully, came to anything like that. Um, and they sort of have these like weird obsessions with death and their own sort of murder scenes and crime scenes. It's kind of like highlighted as a bit of like a school project, but I think there's definitely a, a fascination and fantasizing element of this in terms of being dead which is you know it's pretty goth it's pretty it's pretty puck rock so yeah so speaking of uh, the killing of dogs there seems to be obviously quite a common trend through this film a lot of dogs in the neighborhood seem to be dying it's almost like a an epidemic of dogs dying um and they make a very good point in this film which is like why would you leave your dog outside at this rate i think it's true Especially over night, it's kind of weird. And so quite early on in the film, we get some pretty clear links to one of the main themes of, of what this film really talks about, which is obviously puberty. I mean, like, the dreaded time in our lives, frankly. Um, and this is kind of established with a few things. So obviously, uh, Ginger does get bitten. Um, she is being quite early on in the film, actually. Kind of in many similar ways to, like, American Werewolf in London, which I know is a bit of an inspiration with this film. And because of that, we have a lot of time then to build in some of the metaphors. It's like, werewolf films, generally speaking, have had the same metaphor for uh, even decades before this, you know, when they really started to become popular. Generally speaking, it's about men uh, battling you know uh, the the animal within the separation of normality society expectations what it means to be a man and obviously the primal instincts the the 
inner animal uh, inside and that sort of wrestle for power. And obviously, usually in, uh, in sort of werewolf films, it's like a physical manifestation of that because they become a werewolf, so they become like a literal monster. And usually they end up dying um, as some sort of way of saying if, uh, you know, I guess like if the actual transformation and obviously there's some kind of like metaphor for that, which generally speaking is is usually something along the lines of uh, society will kill that sort of animalistic side to you if it doesn't end up destroying yourself uh, in the process. And it's something that gets kind of echoed here as well. Um, they, they talk about werewolves within this film being something that is purely killing for destruction's sake. There's no rhyme or reason behind that. And there's a lot of links in this to um, sort of like mitosis and sort of like how viruses take over blood cells and stuff. And the metaphors there of uh, eventually the, the virus will cause some type of destruction to the host. Usually viruses end up, you know, killing the host and then it's all about moving and spreading on. Which is also another interesting aspect which does separate this film from other, I think, werewolf stuff. Which I think then kind of got echoed after this, I think, in a lot of films. So that's kind of interesting. It's, it's good for a small uh, indie film like this, especially in Canada, which, you know, isn't as big as, like, Hollywood in America, to sort of set some trends in a genre, which is otherwise usually quite saturated. And I mean, I say saturated, but I feel like there's actually not a lot of werewolf films, and I think it's because, you know, maybe people don't have this depth of perspective and trying to think of a way of uh, telling it in a different way. So because of that, yeah, the films can seem kind of samey. So when Ginger does end up getting bitten, uh, there's obviously some metaphors that come alongside to this. Obviously, these the uh, the starting of of puberty of menstruating when you're a girl, obviously, and these two things happen coincide. And obviously, for B, that doesn't happen because she's three years younger. But even then, as the mother says, they were already like three years delayed. Or at least I think B's three years younger, if I'm not mistaken. Um. Or maybe like a year or so older. Um, yeah, so it's a very interesting perspective because there's a physical human transformation uh, becoming an adult. And then there's a metamorphosis of becoming a werewolf and the two things colliding and, and fusing into each other. And you get essentially like a an acceleration and exaggeration of um, all those primal instincts which you'd normally typically apply to like a werewolf film. But what this does interestingly is it takes it from a woman's perspective. So because of that, there's uh, some interesting power play there because the film does talk about uh, how society perceives women. Um, that any type of female... Uh, engagement sexually to be a um, you know active pursuer of sex and sexuality uh, usually comes with a negative stigma you know being called a slut or something like that and this film talks about that and of course it almost stands on its own leg <laughs> when you don't even have to factor that a lot of this is being fueled by 
um, the actual werewolf part of her that's taking over. So there's some really brilliant like metaphors there. And there's some pretty interesting stuff as well where obviously the bleeding becomes quite heavily uh, feature, which is in the beginning, which obviously, you know, they just assume is just a period and nothing else. And it's a really cool scene where they're, they're looking for you know, women's products. And there's almost within that like a rejection of their own body. I think it was B who made a, a comment talking about like, it, 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 like it's not my fault you're becoming a woman or like, you know, or that essentially there's some comment, I can't remember what it was, but it's like an alienation between your body as it changes. You know, I think it sums up the confusing nature of getting older, but also I think it's a commentary on people's own acceptance with their own body and their own changes. You know, there's potentially some uh, gender commentary there, for sure. There's also just references to it generally just being a, a very confusing time. So it may not necessarily be a rejection of a gender, but also just the reluctance to accept change, right? Uh, you're changing from a child into something else. And in many ways, B and Ginger are the polar opposites of the same spectrum. I think the film deliberately ties them both together to almost perceive themselves to be one person. Uh, even the mother says, to be like, you know, you're not tied at her hip, you don't have to do everything she does, that she should think independently and separately, but B just cannot do this. She is in many ways mentally attached. And they try to prove that there's some physical attachment as well towards the end of the film, where she, you know, accepts um, the blood, essentially. There wants to be a physical unification there as well. So... That's very interesting because I think that kind of shows B using the same metaphors to be someone who's accepting that the body's going to have to change or accepting what type of uh, person that she could potentially come. Whereas beforehand, it was uh, all in an outright rejection. Almost everything that Ginger became, uh, B rejected it. She didn't want to be that. Part of that is probably hanging on to like childhood innocence, that type of thing. But I don't think there's a complete degree of childhood ignorance. I think like B obviously knows what it means to be a woman and what that entails. It's just a reluctance to be the same. And in many ways wants Ginger to go back to the way that she was. And as we kind of see, there's no real way of uh of doing that in a very simplified way. There's a few interesting things that happens with this film that I quite liked. One, I kind of like um, how the marking off of days of um, essentially what you could perceive to be like a period, but also kind of links to full moons. So that's a very interesting thing as well. So it's almost like marking off the next stage where these things become a more regular occurrence is also the thing where the transformation fully completes and it becomes less about someone having a, an individual awkward experience and, you know, has now essentially reached like full-fledged womanhood 
if that makes sense. So it's a super, super interesting concept, and I really, really like that it's, it's done that. And then obviously I think it kind of has some campier elements too, because obviously she grows a tail. I think that's just kind of funny. I don't really know any of the werewolf film where someone grows a tail, so to speak. Because usually like a lot of the transformations are done instantaneous when the full moon hits. However, this film portrays the transformation as quite a gradual process that builds over time. And then when the full moon hits, boom, you've got your, your big final stage. But them having this sort of polar opposite like nature and relationship as the film sort of develops a little bit. Um, it's a very interesting thing because you, you see two people who were very, very attached become very separated. And then one person takes on that you know, liberated stance and lease on life. And the other person reluctantly just maintains the same. And that kind of brings B into beating Sam. Sam is, I guess, a local drug dealer, but also has an interesting fascination into werewolves because he hit one with the car, the very one that killed Ginger. So in many ways, Sam becomes our sort of the Helsing kind of guy, you know, um, the guy who ends up discovering some knowledge about werewolves and, and how to tackle that, which is kind of cool because... One, it's not a very uh, typical person to do this. Usually not these films end up playing some kind of outside figure, right? Like they'll go to a local bookstore to find out about werewolves or uh, they'll speak to someone that's online about werewolves and they end up meeting some random stranger and they give you like a lot of exposition of how to beat a werewolf. Uh, instead, it's just, it's already haphazard. It's just someone who read a book and thought, okay, I can make drugs. This will work. <laughs> Uh, and it, yeah, it pays off quite a lot, um, for sure. There's a really interesting uh, aspect, actually, with this film. He does, however, gives her the idea to talk about silver, and there's a kind of bizarre scene where uh, B like pierces Ginger's belly button with, uh, I guess, like some kind of needle, and then tries to uh, pierce it with like a silver ring, the silver ring that she gets from from Sam, which he said some commentary of like how he got his ears pierced and it was infected, but then he said to put in a silver one and then the silver one like cleared it because he said like pure metals can like purify the blood in the same way that leeches could. Uh, and this kind of just turned into some part of the story that I didn't really like personally, which was I didn't really understand how in that moment when the piercing was happening, and Ginger had such an issue with B being with Sam when she spent a substantial amount of the time uh, with Jason, who's played by uh, Jesse Moss. So it's kind of... It didn't really make sense, if not for just to highlight some bitter disputes between two siblings, I guess. Which, you know, is a, a theme within the film, 100%. And to expand on that, like, it's also kind of bizarre that there's a lot of uh, weird instances of, of people becoming transformed, and, and one of them is with uh, Jason. He becomes infected from having sex. Um, the only kind of summary that we get from this is that Ginger said, you know, it's about uh, biting or, like, swapping any type of fluids. I don't know how she knows that specifically. Uh, none of that was ever relayed to her. Most of the conversation about 
the rules, so to speak, was between B and Sam. So I think that's a little bit of a plot hole for me. Didn't really make sense. And because of that, we get quite a lot of scenes with Jason being blood and leaking blood from his penis. So I guess uh, maybe the menstruational tones continue there somehow. Uh, that kind of thing never again fully gets fleshed out. But I didn't really like a lot of Jason's uh, scenes within the film. I think he was a little bit distracting. It felt a little bit more, I don't know, amateurish, a bit more TV series, a bit more like, uh, I don't know, a bit more cringe for me. Um, however, it, it is kind of made up for the fact that he isn't in it too much and then he gets cured so we don't have to worry about him for the rest of the film. So, yeah, that's fine. But yeah, they, they talk about like um, a, a sort of herb that they find that's like a spin-off of uh, like Wolfsbane. Wolfsbane's like the most common, I think, herb that ever gets mentioned when it comes to werewolves. Uh, and it's something called Monkshood. And they sort of gather this. The mother just so happens to buy flowers that are sort of out of season. And they use this to create... Uh, like a cure which works with Jason which is cool which all kind of brings things down to sort of like the last third of the film things escalate quite heavily Ginger becomes a bit more aggressive a bit more eager to kill people uh, she kills the janitor she kills the teacher um, this is on the back of her being locked into a bathroom and not very happy about it and because of this we get some kind of interesting insights. There's all of a link between killing and sex about how it's the same kind of feeling. So it is kind of leaning a lot more into, um, I guess you could say, some more animalistic reproductive sections, I guess, of thinking. Uh, maybe like how in some animals, like, you know, they die during uh, mating seasons and stuff. And I guess that kind of makes it a little bit more interesting than just it being about, like, this insatiable hunger, which I think gets used quite a lot when it comes to werewolf films. And this kind of uh, exacerbates things further from this, because we get the whole situation where uh, Ginger's mother, um, Pamela, she finds the body, she finds evidence that the daughters are involved in the killing and because of this tries to do something about it and it's kind of uh it's kind of a shame she does her best to be a good mother you know she wants to be involved in this dramatically changing period of time for her daughters and in many ways she just comes off awkward and needy and very demanding of what the people's experiences should be like. And I think this is a another interesting commentary, especially on you know, sexual expression, uh, gender expression, all that type of stuff. You know, a lot of the time parents can be very actively uh, insistent on how a child should be, behave, act, kind of almost disregarding emotions, disregarding hormones. I imagine it's just 
one of the difficulties of being a parent. I don't know myself personally, but obviously, you know, if you had a rowdy teenager and they skip class and they beat people up in fights and they murder people, I can imagine that's uh, very difficult to get your head around as a parent and uh, can't blame her for that. And she, at the very least, tries to, until the bitter end, to do the right thing. And she has this hilarious moment where she recommends essentially burning down the house with the father in it uh, and starting from scratch. And I think that's amazing. And it plays on something earlier that uh, Ginger said about like society's uh, perception of women and that they would be incapable of you know, committing crimes like this, uh, whether it's murder or clearly uh, burning down the house. So they think it's reasonable, I guess, to do so. So it's it's kind of nice. There's an echoing of uh, mother-daughter relationship, you know. Apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, so to speak. The mother takes them to the third act, which in any slasher you would know is usually a big showdown, big third act party. We didn't get a bloodbath, though. It was actually very restrained. Uh, essentially, Ginger tries to climb to Sam. Sam doesn't like this. He intervenes. They take Sam away back to the house. And Sam begins her full transformation in the car. In terms of werewolf standards for most films, it's pretty minimal. It's pretty basic. It's not as adventurous as American Werewolf in London, which I think is something they were kind of aiming for with this. It does look a little bit janky. It does look a little bit odd. It doesn't really look like a wolf. It kind of looks like a little bit too humanized. I think the eyes are a little bit too big. It looks a bit weird to me. However, the sound design was pretty good. In the beginning, we had like a good mixture of dog sounds, uh, snakes hissing, um, and then we had like some bigger cats as well. That's kind of like your growling, rumbling tones. Uh, kind of sounds like a lion, sort of thing, uh, like a lion roar almost. That's that's fine, you know. Even Jurassic Park used elephants, so like there's there's gonna be like a mesh of tones used in real life. It did. However, lean a lot on the big cat sounds, so to speak. Um, so a lot of the shots being in the dark, you would have think you would you would have thought that this is a lion, not a werewolf. Um, I think they could have done a little bit more there to kind of blend it out a little bit more. Just a few more dog sounds, I think, would have worked a lot better. Dog growling, as opposed to cat growling. You know, it, it's good to try and mix in between because it doesn't make it too predictable and kind of makes it sound like a unique sound but also if you do just use one more than the other it can be a little bit jarring because it kind of feels like you're just flipping back and forth between samples and you're not specifically trying to create something that sounds unique uh, whoever saw this in the film uh, sam eventually gets murdered there's a weird scene where they're like sharing blood uh, B can't quite do it. It's kind of weird. She gets very hazy through this, which I don't know if that's something that Ginger went through, but obviously they kind of went through a different changing process. And it's very odd to me that Sam kept recommending to be the hero in this scenario and that B even let him. Considering the fact that 
if B is in any way infected, then surely she would have the healing powers that Ginger did at the beginning of the film. So if anyone's going to get injured, it just makes sense. Plus, Ginger might be more inclined to not hurt B, I guess, because of the relation. But even then, by the end of the film and before the transformation, you know, she doesn't recognize B anymore as being family. And she even says, like, what am I? Like, who am I? You know, and that's pretty powerful statement in itself you know not being able to recognize who you are anymore and the transformation that your body has just make you into a different person especially if you're bit by a werewolf uh, so the last kind of showdown is okay you know there's a bit of a lockdown so to speak and kind of odd because B has the uh, needle and she has a knife she ends up stabbing Ginger with the knife and because of that, Ginger just sort of dies as a werewolf. And there's two kind of things that the film never really touches on, which for me is what the issue with this ending is. One, they never fully cemented uh, what happens to a werewolf after they die. So like in quite a lot of films, when a werewolf dies, they turn back into a human. <clears throat> From the first werewolf hit by the car, uh, it just, I guess, turned into bits and pieces, but never actually turned into a human. Uh, the only significant thing I've noticed was that, um, I believe, Sam said that it had a circumcised penis. So I guess there's some human aspect there. But as we saw with Ginger, like, her werewolf had breasts. So there are some human wolf uh, configuration going on. It's just, there's no distinct change at the end. You know, like, why did Sam not have the body of the werewolf? You know, that's kind of something missing to me. Unless that werewolf didn't die, but we know it did. So, yeah. The second thing also for me that didn't quite work is the fact that werewolves notoriously have uh, healing capabilities the film doesn't quite establish what it takes to kill a werewolf um sam made some comment about you know it doesn't necessarily have to be like a silver bullet so to speak and that we can throw film history out the window uh but they weren't pulling from film history they were reading from a book so what does the book say <laughs> uh we don't really get that and because of that it, it's hard for me to believe that a knife would kill it because it would heal surely so yeah these are two things that we never fully get answered and because i don't think the ending fully works for me but it, it is it's not a bad ending it's not terrible and yeah for a first time watch I, I enjoyed this and it's it's good to see a film that especially was made in the beginning of the 2000s become something that's quite a cult classic because it was definitely I think the time where cult classics could be born and it was quite an obsession at that time including the 80s to, to push out horrors and hopefully we get more of that soon because these days a lot of horrors tend to be um, monoliths that get delegated to people you know uh, a film like Annabelle a film like The Nun uh, wouldn't exist if Insidious 
and the conjuring didn't come before that you know james one and james one looks over everything you know and he's not the only one there's a lot of other horror film franchises that do the same thing and it's a good gateway for directors to come in and, and just take on one of these films like with paranormal activity as well and you know make a stamp to say this is my interpretation but we don't get films like Ginger Snap unless we have someone who creates something from the get-go and establishes a, a new trend in the same way that Ginger Snaps did. Uh, I will say one thing though, I wouldn't say that the film is a massive uh, financial success, <laughs> but culturally it played a pretty good impact. And that's more often than not the only thing that matters, really, because as long as you make an impact, you get a second film. In the same way, if the film makes money, you might get a second film. So as long as you at least tick one of the boxes, it should be fine, right? I guess. Yeah, so that's sort of my review and thoughts of Ginger Snaps. Do let me know what you think about Ginger Snaps on social media. Uh, if you have the capability to do so, you can rate the podcast and you can on Apple. That'd be greatly appreciated. And of course, check out the links, like I said. Consider donating if you want to. For now, I will see you all in the next episode. Uh, there's exciting things to come. Exciting episodes to come. Some interviews to come. Oh, yes. Do stick around. Do follow. I'll see you all in the next episode.